Section 18 of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers in Modesto, California. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter 16 The Passage Home. I never had so much interest before, and very likely I shall never have so much interest again, in the state of the wind, as on the long-looked-for morning of Tuesday the 7th of June. Some nautical authority had told me a day or two previous, anything with west in it will do. So when I darted out of bed at daylight, and throwing up the window, was saluted by a lively breeze from the northwest which had sprung up in the night. It came upon me so freshly, rustling with so many happy associations, that I conceived, upon the spot, a special regard for all airs blowing from that quarter of the compass, which I shall cherish, I dare say, until my own wind has breathed its last frail puff, and withdrawn itself for ever from the mortal calendar. The pilot had not been slow to take advantage of this favourable weather, and the ship which yesterday had been in such a crowded dock that she might have retired from trade for good and all, for any chance she seemed to have of going to sea, was now full sixteen miles away. A gallant sight she was, when we, fast gaining on her in a steamboat, saw her in the distance riding at anchor, her tall masts pointing up in graceful lines against the sky, and every rope and spar expressed in delicate and thread-like outline. Gallant, too, when, we being all aboard, the anchor came up to the sturdy chorus, Cheerily, men, oh, cheerily! And she followed proudly in the towing steamboat's wake. But bravest and most gallant of all, when the tow-rope, being cast adrift, the canvas fluttered from her masts, and spreading her white wings, she soared away upon her free and solitary course. In the after-cabin we were only fifteen passengers in all, and the greater part were from Canada, where some of us had known each other. The night was rough and squally, so were the next two days, but they flew by quickly, and we were soon as cheerful and snug a party, with an honest, manly-hearted captain at our head as ever came to the resolution of being mutually agreeable. On land or water, we breakfasted at eight, lunched at twelve, dined at three, and took our tea at half-past seven. We had abundance of amusements, and dinner was not the least among them. Firstly, for its own sake. Secondly, because of its extraordinary length. Its duration, inclusive of all the long pauses between the courses, being seldom less than two hours and a half, which was a subject of never-failing entertainment. By way of beguiling the tediousness of these banquets, a select association was formed at the lower end of the table, below the mast, to whose distinguished president modesty forbids me to make any further allusion, which, being a very hilarious and jovial institution, was prejudice apart, in high favour with the rest of the community, and particularly with a black steward, 
who live for three weeks in a broad grin at the marvellous humour of these incorporated worthies. Then we had chess for those who played it, whist, cribbage, books, backgammon, and shovelboard. In all weathers, fair or foul, calm or windy, we were every one on deck, walking up and down in pairs, lying in the boats, leaning over the side, or chatting in a lazy group together. We had no lack of music, for one played the accordion, another the violin, and another, who usually began at six o'clock a.m., the key bugle, the combined effect of which instruments, when they all played different tunes in different parts of the ship, at the same time, and within hearing of each other, as they sometimes did, everybody being intensely satisfied with his own performance, was sublimely hideous. When all these means of entertainment failed, a sail would heave in sight, looming, perhaps, the very spirit of a ship, in the misty distance, or passing us so close that through our glasses we could see the people on her decks, and easily make out her name, and whither she was bound. For hours together we could watch the dolphins and porpoises as they rolled and leaped and dived around the vessel, or those small creatures over on the wing, the Mother Carey's chickens, which had borne us company from New York Bay, and for a whole fortnight fluttered around the vessel's stern. For some days we had a dead calm, or very light winds, during which the crew amused themselves with fishing, and hooked an unlucky dolphin who expired in all his rainbow colors on the deck an event of such importance in our barren calendar that afterwards we dated from the dolphin and made the day on which he died an era besides all this when we were five or six days out there began to be much talk of icebergs of which wandering islands an unusual number of which had been seen by the vessels that had come into new york a day or two before we left that port and of whose dangerous neighbourhood we were warned by the sudden coldness of the weather and the sinking of the mercury in the barometer while these tokens lasted a double lookout was kept and many dismal tales were whispered after dark of ships that had struck upon the ice and gone down in the night but the wind obliging us to hold a southward course we saw none of them and the weather soon grew bright and warm again. The observation every day at noon, and the subsequent working of the vessel's course, was, as may be supposed, a feature in our lives of paramount importance, nor were there wanting, as there never are, sagacious doubters of the captain's calculations, who, so soon as his back was turned, would, in the absence of compasses, measure the chart with bits of string, and ends of pocket-handkerchiefs, and points of snuffers, and clearly prove him to be wrong, by an odd thousand miles or so. It was very edifying to see these unbelievers shake their heads and frown, and hear them hold forth strongly upon navigation, not that they knew anything about it, but that they always mistrusted the captain in calm weather, or when the wind was adverse. Indeed, the mercury itself is not so variable as this class of passengers, 
whom you will see, when the ship is going nobly through the water, quite pale with admiration, swearing that the captain beats all captains ever known, and even hinting at subscriptions for a piece of plate, and who, next morning, when the breeze was lulled, and all the sails hang useless in the idle air, shake their despondent heads again, and say, with screwed-up lips, they hope that captain is a sailor, but they shrewdly doubt him. It even became an occupation in the calm to wonder when the wind would spring up in favourable quarter, where it was clearly shown by all the rules and precedents it ought to have sprung up long ago. The first mate who whistled for it zealously was much respected for his perseverance, and was regarded even by the unbelievers as a first-rate sailor. Many gloomy looks would be cast upward through the cabin skylights at the flapping sails while dinner was in progress, and some, growing bold in ruefulness, predicted that we should land about the middle of July. There are always on board ship a sanguine one and a despondent one. The latter character carried it hollow at this period of the voyage, and triumphed over the sanguine one at every meal by inquiring where he supposed the great western, which left New York a week after us, was now, and where he supposed the canard steam packet was now, and what he thought of sailing vessels as compared with steamships now, and so beset his life with pestilent attacks of that kind, that he too was obliged to affect despondency for very peace and quietude. These were additions to the list of entertaining incidents, but there was still another source of interest. We carried in the steerage nearly a hundred passengers, a little world of poverty, and as we came to know individuals among them by sight, from looking down upon the deck where they took the air in the daytime, and cooked their food, and very often ate it too, we became curious to know their histories, and with what expectations they had gone out to America, and on what errands they were going home, and what their circumstances were. The information we got on these heads from the carpenter, who had charge of these people, was often of the strangest kind. Some of them had been in America but three days, some but three months, and some had gone out in the last voyage of that very ship in which they were now returning home. Others had sold their clothes to raise the passage money, and had hardly rags to cover them. Others had no food, and lived upon the charity of the rest, and one man, it was discovered, nearly at the end of the voyage, not before, for he kept his secret close, and did not court compassion, had had no substance whatever but the bones and scraps of fat he took from the plates used in the after-cabin dinner, when they were put out to be washed. The whole system of shipping and conveying these unfortunate persons is one that stands in need of thorough revision. If any class deserve to be protected and assisted by the government, it is that class who are banished from their native land in search of the bare means of subsistence. All that could be done for these poor people by the great compassion 
and humanity of the captain and officers was done, but they require much more. The law is bound, at least upon the English side, to see that too many of them are not put on board one ship, and that their accommodations are decent, not demoralizing, and profligate. It is bound, too, in common humanity, to declare that no man shall be taken on board without his stock of provisions being previously inspected by some proper officer, and pronounced moderately sufficient for his support upon the voyage. It is bound to provide, or to require that there be provided, a medical attendant, whereas in these ships there are none, though sickness of adults and deaths of children on the passage are matters of the very commonest occurrence. Above all, it is the duty of any government, be it monarchy or republic, to interpose and put an end to that system by which a firm of traders and immigrants purchase of the owners the whole tween-decks of a ship, and send on board as many wretched people as they can lay hold of, on any terms they can get, without the smallest reference to the conveniences of the steerage, the number of berths, the slightest separation of the sexes, or anything but their own immediate profit. Nor is even this the worst of the vicious system, for certain crimping agents of these houses, who have a percentage on all the passengers they inveigle, are constantly travelling about those districts where poverty and discontent are rife, and tempting the credulous into more misery, by holding out monstrous inducements to emigration, which can never be realized. The history of every family we had on board was pretty much the same. After hoarding up, and borrowing, and begging, and selling everything to pay the passage, they had gone out to New York, expecting to find its streets paved with gold, and had found them paved with very hard and very real stones. Enterprise was dull. Laborers were not wanted. Jobs of work were to be got, but the payment was not. They were coming back even poorer than they went. One of them was carrying an open letter from a young English artisan, who had been in New York a fortnight, to a friend near Manchester, whom he strongly urged to follow him. One of the officers brought it to me as a curiosity. This is the country, Jem, said the writer. I like America. There is no despotism here. That's the great thing. Employment of all sorts is going a-begging, and wages are capital. You have only to choose a trade, Jem, and be it. I haven't made choice of one yet, but I shall soon. At present, I haven't quite made up my mind whether to be a carpenter or a tailor. There was yet another kind of passenger, and but one more, who, in the calm and the light winds, was a constant theme of conversation and observation among us. This was an English sailor, a smart, thorough-built English man-of-war's man, with his hat to his shoes, who was serving in the American Navy, and having got leave of absence was on his way home to see his friends. When he presented himself to take and pay for his passage, it had been suggested to him that, being an able seaman, 
he might as well work it and save the money. But this piece of advice he very indignantly rejected, saying he'd be damned, but for once he'd go aboard ship as a gentleman. Accordingly, they took his money, but he no sooner came aboard than he stowed his kit in the foresail, arranged to mess with the crew, and the very first time the hands were turned up, went aloft like a cat before anybody, and all through the passage there he was, first at the braces, outermost on the yards, perpetually lending a hand everywhere, but always with a sober dignity in his manner, and a sober grin on his face, which plainly said, I do it as a gentleman, for my own pleasure, mind you. At length and at last, the promised wind came up in right good earnest, and away we went before it, with every stitch of canvas set, slashing through the water nobly. There was a grandeur in the motion of the splendid ship, as, overshadowed by her massive sails, she rode at a furious pace upon the waves, which filled one with an indescribable sense of pride and exultation. As she plunged into a foaming valley, how I loved to see the green waves, bordered deep with white, come rushing on astern, to buoy her upward at their pleasure, and curl around her as she stooped again, but always own her for their haughty mistress still. On, on we flew, with changing lights upon the water, being now in the blessed region of fleecy skies, a bright sun lighting us by day, and a bright moon by night, the vane pointing directly homeward, alike the truthful index to the favouring wind, and to our cheerful hearts, until at sunrise one fair Monday morning, the 27th of June, I shall not easily forget the day, there lay before us old Cape Clear, God bless it, showing in the mist of early morning like a cloud, the brightest and most welcome cloud to us that ever hid the face of heaven's fallen sister, home. Dim speck as it was in the wide prospect, it made the sunrise a, a more cheerful sight, and gave to it that sort of human interest which it seems to want at sea. There, as elsewhere, the return of day is inseparable from some sense of renewed hope and gladness, but the light shining on the dreary waste of water, and showing it in all its vast extent of loneliness, presents a solemn spectacle, which even night, veiling it in darkness and uncertainty, does not surpass. The rising of the moon is more in keeping with the solitary ocean, and has an air of melancholy grandeur, which in its soft and gentle influence seems to comfort while it saddens. I recollect when I was a very young child having a fancy that the reflection of the moon in water was a path to heaven, trodden by the spirits of good people on their way to God, and this old feeling often came over me again when I watched it on a tranquil night at sea. The wind was very light on this same Monday morning, but it was still in the right quarter, and so, by slow degrees, we left Cape Clear behind, 
and sailed along within sight of the coast of Ireland. And how merry we all were, and how loyal to the George Washington, and how full of mutual congratulations, and how venturesome in predicting the exact hour at which we should arrive at Liverpool, may be easily imagined and readily understood. Also, how heartily we drank the captain's health that day at dinner, and how restless we became about packing up, and how two or three of the most sanguine spirits rejected the idea of going to bed at all that night as something it was not worth while to do, so near the shore, but went nevertheless and slept soundly, and how to be so near our journey's end was like a pleasant dream from which one feared to wake. The friendly breeze freshened again next day, and on we went once more before it, gallantly, descrying now and then an English ship going homeward under shortened sail, while we, with every inch of canvas crowded on, dashed gaily past, and left her far behind. Towards evening the weather turned hazy, with a drizzling rain, and soon became so thick that we sailed, as it were, in a cloud. Still, we swept onward like a phantom ship, and many an eager eye looked up to where the lookout on the mast kept watch for Hollyhead. At length, his long-expected cry was heard, and at the same moment there shone out from the haze and mist ahead a gleaming light, which presently was gone, and soon returned, and soon was gone again. Whenever it came back, the eyes of all on board brightened and sparkled like itself. And there we all stood, watching this revolving light upon the rock at Hollyhead, and praising it for its brightness and its friendly warning, and lauding it, in short, above all other signal lights that ever were displayed, until it once more glimmered faintly in the distance far behind us. Then it was time to fire a gun for a pilot, and almost before its smoke had cleared away, a little boat with a light at her masthead came bearing down upon us through the darkness, swiftly, and presently, our sails being backed, she ran alongside, and the horse pilot, wrapped and muffled in pea-coats and shawls, to the very bridge of his water-ploughed-up nose, stood bodily among us on the deck and I think if that pilot had wanted to borrow fifty pounds for an indefinite period, on no security, we should have engaged to lend it to him, among us, before his boat had dropped astern, or, which is the same thing, before every scrap of news in the paper he brought with him had become the common property of all on board. We turned in pretty late that night, and turned out pretty early next morning, by six o'clock we clustered on the deck, prepared to go ashore, and looked upon the spires and roofs and smoke of Liverpool. By eight we all sat down in one of its hotels, to eat and drink together for the last time, and by nine we had shaken hands all round, and broken up our social company forever. The country by the railroad seemed as we rattled through it, like a luxuriant garden. The beauty of the fields, so small they looked, the hedgerows and the trees, the pretty cottages, the beds of flowers, 
the old churchyards, the antique houses, and every well-known object, the exquisite delights of that one journey, crowding in the short compass of a summer's day the joy of many years, with the winding up with home, and all that makes it dear, no tongue can tell, or pen of mine describe. End of section 18